0: Hi there, I'm Rory O'Connor, Professor of Health Psychology and a Mental Health Researcher at the University of Glasgow.
1: And I'm Craig, a filmmaker and content creator at MQ Mental Health Research.
0: And welcome to MQ Open Mind, a podcast that brings together lived experience with scientific research to help us to better understand mental health problems, and we hope to do so in a way that is accessible to all.
1: This week, we have Associate Professor in Psychiatry at UCL and Consultant Psychiatrist at Camden and Islington NHS Foundation Trust, Dr. Alexandra Pittman. In this episode, we spoke about loneliness, the importance of inclusive research, and enjoying solitude.
0: Welcome, Alexandra. It's absolutely a delight to have you on the podcast. Obviously, we know each other. and in our academic lives so I'm really delighted that you can join us today Craig and I for MQ's Open Mind podcast and we're really keen to discuss really loneliness and that I mean because loneliness when I started out as an academic that wasn't really a topic or focus in terms of research or even on policy but that's been a big change and that's something we're hoping to get into maybe with some of the discussions with you but maybe first it's always good to get some sense of who you are so could you, I know you're a psychiatrist, But can you tell us a bit about your journey into psychiatry and really what your interest And I know you have an interest in suicide, but it's broader than that. It's also in loneliness and other aspects. So maybe can you start at the beginning, please, Alexandra? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me.
2: And I think, you know, the social determinants of health have always been of interest to me. So going through my medical training, I did have a suspicion that I would be interested in psychiatry but you obviously only know that when you actually have your psychiatry placements. And I really, really enjoyed them. So at the first opportunity, really decided to do a training in in psychiatry. And after I'd got all of my exams out of the way, this opportunity came up to pursue an academic career. So I came to UCL, where I was taught by some great psychiatric epidemiologists, and, and immediately I wanted to focus on suicide. And I started off by looking at the the impact of of the suicide of of someone close to you on your own mental health. And obviously part of that is that, you know, the extreme feelings of loneliness that you can feel after a a sudden bereavement by any cause. So that's how I came to be interested in suicide and then further on down the line to be interested in loneliness, because obviously that is a risk factor as your own team have demonstrated in a really great systematic review, is a risk factor for suicide and, and for suicide attempt
0: yeah and so so then you're the i was saying it's really interesting the balance if you're a clinical academic as you are that balance between that clinical work and how that informs with your your ongoing research so is that synergy evident in the work that you've been doing or have done
2: it really is actually and because the way my job plan works like many clinical academics
0: it's 50 50
2: so I spend part of my time in a a veteran service. It's a veteran mental health service for the whole of London. And as is always the case, when you start to do some research in your clinical work, you will bring hypotheses from your clinical work and you'll test them in your research work. And then you'll bring your findings from your your research work and you'll use them in your clinical practice. So when I first started out as a psychiatrist, I would always ask people, is there anyone in your family who's died by suicide? And that's obviously standard practice Mm -hmm. for any clinician doing a risk assessment but then when I started to investigate the impact of the suicide of of a close contact I realized that it didn't have to be a relative it could be a friend it could be a partner it could be an ex-partner so now I always ask about that in my clinical encounters and I just discover all of these patients who've got these horrendous experiences of knowing people who died by suicide and if you think about People in mental health services, they often meet other patients in mental health services. They might have relationships with people who've got mental health problems. And that in itself increases their risk that they might experience the suicide of people with severe mental illness. And then thinking about loneliness now, it's only in the last few years that I've been interested in loneliness. And I never used to ask about loneliness before. Mm -hmm. And I suppose partly that's because I just wasn't aware that it it was so clinically significant. But maybe I was also drawn in by how stigmatizing that question could be. And I knew that people didn't want to be asked how lonely they are. And so now in in my clinical practice, I will listen to a patient's account of their social situation. And I might ask a question which seems quite non-judgmental, like, you know, you're talking about how, for example, since you left um, the Navy and um, you've been adjusting to civilian life, you're no longer surrounded by all of your friends and colleagues do you sometimes feel a bit lonely. So it kind of gives them permission to say, well, actually, I, I do feel very lonely. And I'm really struck by the problem of loneliness in the, in the veterans community. And of course, these are people who often come across as very, very socially adept and say, do you think any of your friends realize how lonely you are? They would say, oh, no, no, I'd never want them to know that. So it really brings home the stigma of loneliness that we
0: definitely pick up when we study it in, in the research side of my life. Well, that's really set up, I think, the the heart of this podcast is really maybe what we mean by loneliness, because I think we all have an intuitive understanding what we mean by loneliness, and there's loneliness and and there's social isolation. So maybe could you tell us a bit about how you define in your research or in your clinical work, how do you define loneliness and and then how is that different or similar to it being socially isolated?
2: Well, I'm part of a network of um, researchers and policymakers and practitioners and people with lived experience of loneliness. And we're part of the Loneliness and Social Isolation and Mental Health Research Network. And so in, in all the work that we've done, we've tended to conceptualize loneliness, probably most simply in terms of the subjective feeling of your social relationships, just not being up to scratch, not being what you would desire. And that is in contrast to the objective number of social contacts you have, which better describes the concept of social isolation. And I think that people who tend to be um, very socially unisolated, so they've got lots of friends and family, find it really difficult to name uh, loneliness because they can't conceive that it's Mm -hmm. possible that you could have all these friends and family and yet feel so lonely. And, And actually that's probably even more stigmatizing for them because they think you know nobody's going to take this seriously. They'll point out how many friends I've got, whether in in my day to day, you know, face to face encounters or all my friends on social media. How can they possibly understand how I feel? And yet, it's quite possible to feel really lonely when you're surrounded by people. And in fact, in the qualitative data that we've analysed in our in our group, we we've we've often observed that. You know, it's when people have loads and loads of people around them. They might be at a party or in a pub or in their hall of residence surrounded by people. And yet their loneliness is really compounded by this awareness of all these people around them who could theoretically assuage their feelings of loneliness, but somehow it just doesn't happen.
1: Yeah. With the the rise of like social media where people feel more connected with one another, do you feel that it's about loneliness? it's getting worse? Well, I think everybody thinks it's getting worse.
2: And we hear people talk about the epidemic of loneliness. And I do really struggle with that concept. And I I don't use that term because I think whilst we all think it's getting worse, we really do have to attend to what rigorous research studies tell us. And so whilst there are studies which have, have tracked, particularly during COVID levels of loneliness, there are some very different findings. So recently, A study that your group did, Rory, showed that in a a, a very mixed, um, in in a sample of very mixed age groups, overall levels of loneliness didn't change over the COVID pandemic period. But if you looked at, at specific age groups, you could see there were very different patterns by age group and by time. And then there are other studies which perhaps looked at specific age groups. Uh, there's one study I've read recently, for example, and that showed that loneliness in older adults had increased over the COVID pandemic. And that was particularly the case for people living alone, and that makes sense, and, um, and for women. But you know, there's been some particularly interesting findings in young people. And we know from a recent systematic review, actually, which looked at um, estimates of the prevalence of loneliness in young people across countries, across the world, over a long period of time, you know, m- well predating the pandemic. And this shows that loneliness is increasing in young people in countries across the world. So this is something which is happening in that age group. But when you look at the COVID period specifically, there is a sense from the data that actually kids who were old enough to have their own devices to be socially connected on um, in an online world were better off than younger kids who didn't have that. Um, agency in terms of connecting with their friends. So they were really quite isolated, um, whereas their older siblings um, actually did quite well because they had that outlet beyond the family home where really things were very, very limited. So I think there were very, very different patterns in different age groups. I think Rory, your study showed that there were no differences by ethnicity. You had some interesting patterns in your study and definitely people with mental health problems had far, you know, far higher prevalence of loneliness. And we specifically focused on this group, um, our loneliness network, during the pandemic because we did some interviews specifically with people with pre-existing mental health problems. And we asked them about their experience of loneliness. And it was really, really striking findings because these were people who they weren't so adept at adjusting to the new online world. They really, really struggled with that. That their anxieties around health were, you know, really, really augmented by the sort of general, you know, panic about the infectious agents they might encounter when they are out in, in public. They really, really felt forgotten by the policy community. It seemed to be all about, you know, kind of public outrage over the new, you know, new onset of mental health problems in previously healthy people. Whereas they were thinking, "Hang on, we've had mental health problems for years, and no one really seems to care about us." And they had, you know, they were cut off from their friends, they were cut off from mental health services, which they perceived to be woefully inadequate. And the, you know, the the online services that were put in in their place were really not not good enough to meet their needs, as well as a complete shutdown of a lot of services they'd relied on in the voluntary sector um, community. So it really, really was a rough ride for that group of people. And I think we've tried to really prioritize that group in our research because they are tending to be forgotten. In 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 other um, pieces of research, which tend to focus on you know, new onset anxiety and depression.
0: No, I think you I mean, you made such an important point about. Well, the broader point is, we're not all in this pandemic together. We never have been, and there's lots of communities and individuals who've been left behind And this. I think the people with pre-existing mental health problems, and all the data we've got, and seeing other countries across, not just in the UK, across the world. I mean, I mean, the huge um, impact. On, on people's mental health doesn't matter which indicator, if you have pre-existing mental health problems, much more lonely, much more likely to have depressive symptoms, much more likely to be suicidal, and so on. But the thing that struck us when I, we we're looking at the more our more recent data, so we've been tracking, um, Craig, for your benefit, we've been tracking the mental health and well-being of a sample of the UK since COVID began. And I and and absolutely, Alexander, as you say that. The, the um, older adults, we didn't see the initial phases of the pandemic, we actually relatively stable were the levels of loneliness. Now, young people reported the, were reported high levels of loneliness, people with pre-existing mental health problems, women, people from more socially disadvantaged backgrounds, all the stuff we would have predicted because of obviously pre-existing inequalities just being exacerbated. But there is certainly some signals as as the pandemic has gone along, older adults are reporting, starting to report it's still much lower than younger people, starting to report higher levels of loneliness. So I think it highlights that group again, another group who've been overlooked. So I, I think it's so important, this work, and it's great to see that you're, you're trying to not just do the quant- quantitative survey-based work, but really trying to get to the nuts and bolts and what if, what, how these people are experiencing loneliness. And but that the number of times I've heard that line you said about, yeah, people pre-existing mental health problems going, what? Oh, well, hold on. Hello, we've been here for a long, long time, experiencing these difficulties. And there's only now there's this light shone on it because of this outrage, as you say, from the, of the pandemic. So that I, I really it reminds us of that we have a long way to go in terms of achieving anything to do with parity of esteem or, or the like. Mm-hmm. But, but can I just bring you back, um, Alexander, just to that? So we, we've made the sense between, obviously, loneliness and um and sort of social isolation, or being surrounded by people, doesn't protect. I wonder then. So, if somebody was to say to you, and "This is way a way bit unfair," I think. But if somebody was to say to you, "Right, Alexander Pittman, how do we solve loneliness?" Right, and I know it'd be tailored. I know it's a very on one level, a very naive question. But actually, it's a question psychologists, psychiatrists, mental health professionals are asked all the time. So, how would how would you go about solving this problem of, of loneliness because I agree it's not an epidemic I don't think that's helpful. I mean there's so many ways of, of,
2: of coming at this and I think that first of all you have to think about the, the approach you take are you taking a psychological approach and trying to address cognitions or are you taking a social approach and thinking about the opportunities available to one or are you thinking of a combination of the two and given that we don't really know whether either or work particularly well, we don't really know if they work in combination. So we're really in the very early stages of understanding what works. And there's some really good systematic reviews coming out at the moment that start to give us a sense that it's it's probably quite helpful to target cognitions. And actually you could argue that you need to do that in order to make meaningful changes to the you know, social networks. But the other key question is, You may come up with this wonderful intervention with really fabulous, you know, trial evidence to support its effectiveness, but if nobody wants it, that was all a complete waste of of money. And this comes back to the stigma of loneliness because if I'm trying to entice you into my kind of anti-loneliness intervention, there's there's a lot of stuff on the on the tin that's really kind of not very attractive (laughs) here. And this is really the case for young people and for for whom loneliness is probably most stigmatizing. And so that's why we've been trying to do studies. with young people to ask them you know what what would you actually want and we're actually recruiting for a study at the moment and that is involving um a researcher interviewing young people and initially inter- interestingly we were planning to do it as a fo- as focus groups and it was really difficult to recruit that and i think that says a lot about how uncomfortable people feel about discussing these things in a group so now we're doing it as face-to-face interviews to find out um, what people would actually like and we're getting the sense that Um, Badging things as an an anti loneliness intervention is really not going to bring people in and offering things as a universal intervention. So for all young people in a class to help them, you know, reframe the way they think about their own loneliness or other people who are socially isolated or who appear lonely. That's probably a better approach than than trying to target the people who feel lonely. Now, there is one benefit, I would say, of, of the period we've just been through during COVID. Is that it has possibly destigmatized loneliness because so many people have really felt lonely and um, bereft of certain um, social connections. So I think that has tended to destigmatize being able to, to describe, be aware of one's own loneliness and also identify someone who might be in need of interventions. But I do think we, we need to continue to understand what will work for specific ethnic minority groups for specific age groups, for specific genders, because otherwise we're, we're at the risk of producing or investing in, in, in interventions designed
1: for everybody that aren't really going to help people that much. I was more of a question of how can somebody identify if they're feeling lonely? Because there's
2: probably quite a lot of denial involved because of the stigma. I think it's some, sometimes helpful to read the accounts of people that you might identify with and see if there's anything in there that you recognize. So at the moment, we're doing a couple of studies, which I think has given me some really interesting insights. So on the one hand, we've done a study where we were particularly interested in international students and their experience of loneliness, because they're a group that Rory, you and I know that universities are very concerned about because they're a substantial proportion of the students that we, we teach in the universities. And we are aware that they can feel very, very disconnected. And a lot of them were being taught online during the pandemic, which made things very difficult for them. So what we're doing at the moment is we're analysing data from the BBC loneliness experiment. And this was where you know, thousands and thousands of people were asked questions like, what does loneliness mean to you? And what we've done for this particular study is we have picked out the responses from people who are international students up to the age of 40 and we are doing a thematic analysis of what loneliness means to them. And there are these really heartrending accounts of people who say, I, I literally have nobody to confide in, nobody to go and have a meal with, nobody to share my joys with, nobody to share my difficulties with. And all of us can identify with moments where we felt like that, but this is a consistent experience for these students throughout their whole time at university. And even though they have social connections back at home, They are just online or down the telephone and they are inadequate for what they actually need in their new host country. The other study that we're doing which again analyzes data from the BBC loneliness experiment is um, a study which looks at the responses to the question about what do you do to address loneliness and for this study we just focused on young people so we looked at people aged 16 to 18 and we analyzed those data again using the approach of thematic analysis and this again was fascinating because We found a lot of the things that you might expect to see, which I've already mentioned, when I'm lonely, I connect with my friends, I try and meet new people, I try and change the way I think about my loneliness and I try and go out and and put on a brave face. But there was this subgroup of people who were extraordinary because they described that they tried to change the way they felt about solitude. So they tried to enjoy their solitude as an adaptation to feeling lonely. And we were really struck by this. Because it just seemed, you know, that these 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds and 18-year-olds, they were ahead of the game and they knew that this was a really important life skill that they needed to do, they needed to acquire in order to cope with life over the life course. Because we will all have moments where our social circles shrink, we move jobs, relationships break down, people die, people just don't really meet our expectations sometimes and they're not there when we need them. So we will all feel an inadequacy in our social relationships. We will feel in in solitude at times. And while solitude is often a really important state of being, it's a time to kind of recharge and just have space to think for ourselves. And I think that's a component of good mental health. It can be quite painful when it persists for a long period of time, but having the skills to really enjoy that solitude was seen by these young people as really important and they found it very helpful. So it's studies like that which I think are really important to complement the trial evidence because we know that if we try and deliver interventions that are described by young people as helpful then there will at least be reasonable uptake of those interventions.
0: It really highlights obviously the importance of this co-production approach and co-produced research but the, but then the challenge is how do we translate that translate that knowledge then um, into getting it into the trials i think that's and we're still i think we still struggle with that i mean as a field more broadly in mental health but but in terms of payback never mind improving the well-being of everybody i mean the data on loneliness as a predictor of mortality not just from suicide but from physical health problems i mean or suicidal behavior but i mean it's really stark as well Is there's mm. it's, it's, it's some statistic? i might have got this wrong that I can't remember what level of loneliness, but there's some of the sort of classic work from the United States showing that it's the equivalent of smoking, is it 20 mm. cigarettes a day or something like that? It's something I mean, I really yeah.
2: I don't know how they've kind of equivalised yeah. the cigarette, but it, it, it's the sort of thing that gets policymakers thinking, okay, I'm going to take this seriously now. So I think that's been quite helpful for the, um, the loneliness research agenda and people sitting up and taking notice. And now we have a tackling loneliness strategy team, Mm -hmm. which is a cross governmental policy team, which is fantastic. And they work really closely with researchers. So they've invited a a whole host of researchers across the spectrum of loneliness research to join them in, in, in creating an evidence group. So they will ensure that there isn't that disconnect between research and policy. So they will say, please, can you map the evidence and work out where there are gaps? And then they will try and commission research that fills those gaps. So that's been really, really helpful for us to work much more closely with the policymakers. and it's been really rewarding to see how seriously they take this, this topic mm-hmm. as a policy priority, but also how willing they are to, to work with researchers to try and get our timelines the same, because that's often a, a problem when, when researchers are working with policymakers.
0: And, and is that? And how is that? Your experience with the policymakers because they're often on a cycle, an election cycle. So, I mean, I don't know what it's like in England, but I imagine it's the same in the world over. Is sometimes the the priorities are obviously short-term gains rather than looking at the long term. So, have you had any experience of seeing any of these short-term gains already, or has everything been over? Has everything been overtaken by COVID, or or visa? I mean, what has has been delivered? Because in Scotland, we also have a loneliness strategy and so on so i'm just keen to see what what has actually happened on the ground
2: i think COVID did slow things down actually and i think they were very upfront with us about what they wish they'd been able to do and haven't done and of course you see a lot of civil servants being redeployed and sent to different departments and then someone comes come comes in and has to to refresh the, the agenda and 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 see where it's all going but i it is still you know quite painstaking to, to identify those evidence gaps yeah. so you've got a, that is a limiting step really and we've only just done that and we produce the evidence gap report this January and so now that the plan is to to try and commission the research to fill the gap so I guess it, it always proceeds slower than you imagine and I'm I'm always feel that you know policymakers look at us researchers and our rather long timelines and think what are they doing <laughs> but you know we feel that we're working quite hard on it but, you know, it's just like the grant cycle is interminable, isn't it? So we we, we do tend to, to work in a, in, a, in a sort of stepped approach. So I think, you know, we're, we're meeting again this week to see where we've got to. We're meeting regularly. And, you know, I I suppose that sometimes there are periods of time when there isn't a, a minister for loneliness because there might be a cabinet reshuffle and yeah. there's a bit of a kind of hiatus over, you know, who's been given that portfolio. But, you know, that there it, it hasn't been dropped completely so it does seem to be a priority and the fact that this team exists and is a truly cross-governmental team shows that, that they're appreciating that there are impacts across every single department um in the government it's actually housed within the department of digital culture media and sport Okay. okay. And, I, and i think that that's important because it it shows that there are lots of ways you can package interventions to address loneliness whether it's through you know sports the engagement in sport and the arts, using social media, and so I, I think that's been a really valuable experience, actually.
0: Yeah, and I think what's good is, I mean, what it illustrates is loneliness. I mean, it really has moved up the list of priorities and reflected this year. The Mental Health Awareness Week theme is loneliness, so mm. um so I think again those things. I, I, I'm a, I'm unaware of. There previously been a loneliness theme so i'm assuming that's the first time is it
2: yes it is but i think there's that you know every summer now there's a loneliness week which is actually in, in in june so we're going to have two weeks of loneliness
0: you know research highlighted this year which is great so are our- you, sorry are you, are you are you is your group doing work alone or any events for Either well, of in,
2: in the first of those those weeks, so Mental Health Awareness Week, we're going to be tweeting some research studies throughout the week and also some videos which are made by um, an organization called Bespoke, which I know that you, you'll be speaking at their conference mm-hmm. and um, you know, that will be available online for people to watch. So we'll be producing videos that will be um, produced by Bespoke during that week. I know that Imperial College have a whole week of events and a colleague who we both work with, Lindsay Dewar, She'll be giving a a talk about um, how to use social uh, social media to to promote social connectedness and and good mental health. So there's lots of events going on. But for us, our big event is actually happening in the second of those weeks, um, in June, uh, the, the week in June. And our event on the 15th of June is our final showcase symposium. So our funded period is coming to an end in the next year. So we're basically going to present lots of research that we've funded over the course of that time and, and lots of people who will be uh, presenting the uh, important research studies that really kind of highlight the important findings um, that have been produced over that period so I'm looking forward to that and and again that's free anyone can register online for that
0: that's lots of exciting things going on if somebody gave you 10 million pounds what would you invest in and maybe thinking about loneliness perhaps given there's a podcast about loneliness is there like some real ideal study you think, oh, if we knew the answer to that question or did that, that study, that would really help us with the loneliness issues. I think it was really unfair, sorry. I no,
2: it's. <laughs> I think it's a really good question. I, I'd love to be able to find a, a way of creating a sort of schedule that wasn't too onerous for each individual, that kind of characterised their past experience of social connections, what makes them feel connected, their own profile of kind of cognitive biases about how they perceive social threat and social interaction and their own preferences about things they enjoy things they value and how much they value time spent alone and how much time they need alone and also they need to be an enjoyable period of time being alone mm-hmm. and to use that profile as a way to tailor their own kind of anti-loneliness intervention again as a kind of life skill or tool so that if they do go through a bereavement or a job change or any difficult circumstance, they can work out what is the best approach, whether it's psychological or social, um, to, to temper that so that their, their sense of loneliness is reduced and that will benefit their mental and physical
1: health.
0: No, absolutely no, I, be... <laughs> I would give you the money. I would give you the money. Oh, I it. <laughs> Me too.
1: <laughs> what would you say would be the in your image, like the future of mental health research?
2: I, I, I really, you know, I'm very interested by suicide research, as, as Rory knows, and I'm very interested in how somebody can accumulate so many influences over their life course that will contribute to their own sense of suicidality. And that might be a mixture of, you know, the structural things that we know influence suicidal thoughts like financial problems, Um, relationship breakdown, mental illness, things like that, but we also are influenced by all the people around us and people we know who die by suicide or attempt suicide, or talk about their suicidal thoughts by people we see depicted in the media, whether they were celebrities or not, and all of that can influence our own thoughts about suicide, and I'm, you know, working at the moment on how people assimilate all that and how that changes their own thoughts about suicide and that is it is also connected to the way we relate to people around us because it relates to the degree to which we feel we belong to other people because as as Rory's described so well in in his own model of suicidal behaviour when people feel that they have no place in the world and they just don't belong which is equivalent to that sense of feeling lonely and disconnected and when they feel that. There are a burden on people around them, that's when they feel that they would be better off dead and that society would be better off without them. So, you know, what I, I really want to understand is how people can really feel so disconnected and of no value to other people that they really feel that suicide is a better option for them. Uh, so that's my personal yeah. vision of mental health research, but I appreciate it's It's just one aspect of it.
1: Yeah. It's a, uh... Your research is quite difficult. I yeah, imagine hearing some of these stories. Uh, how do you switch off? Like, What do you do to manage your own mental health?
2: Well, I, I had a, a meeting just before this with a student who's reading through some transcripts of, of some interviews that we, we did with people brief by suicide. And they are really, really harrowing. And I was just reflecting with her that it was really important that we had the space in supervision to talk about how awful these were. Mm-hmm. And because it, it, if she'd just been left to her own devices to just sit there and read through these, these transcripts by herself without that opportunity to process it, that, that would have just been horrendous for her. So I think it's really important that suicide researchers have a network, which is both formal in, 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 in sense of supervisory relationships or teams who discuss findings together, but also peers that you can share those experiences with. But it's also essential that we have a life outside of our work, which allows us to completely disconnect from all of that. So, you know, things like in academic life, there's a bombardment of emails. I know that Rory labours under, you know, hundreds of emails and requests. And I think it's really important that we just take a complete break, Mm that we can and have hobbies that mean we totally disconnect from that. My own personal mental health tip is to go to your local Mind charity shop by a really complex thousand piece jigsaw of a, <laughs> of a theme that you know a view that really pleases your your retiny and then just stu- get stuck into that
0: so are, I, this is something i i've learned about you today i didn't know about your fascination <laughs> with jigsaws it's <laughs> most
1: stressful for me <laughs>
0: yeah <I> no, <know>, exactly <laughs> and are these uh, but yeah i mean i in years gone by i, I enjoyed it and jigsaw i must say but Having kids, I remember the challenge was then doing jigsaws, and inevitably, there would be pieces missing. and then, because we'd have lost the pieces. And then I, find, I used to always find that quite I struggled with that. Where is the missing pieces of the jigsaw? But obviously really? that wouldn't have happened to you, Alexander, clearly. It's
2: part' it's part of the joy, just feeling really kind of wound up about it. But I think this does relate to what we're we're talking about because you know jigsaws are things that you can do in solitude and enjoy your solitude you can do it with people buzzing around you and talking to you and maybe helping you out a bit um but not for the final piece because you want to do that yourself um so you know i I think it's it's really hard for people to be told they should be practicing mindfulness all the time, because it's, it's, it seems to be the panacea that everybody suggests for everything. And it's really difficult to achieve a, a state of mindfulness. And I think that we need to kind of let people off the hook a little bit and let them find their own way to achieve this kind of other world where they're not thinking about other things. Because they're thinking, "Ooh, that shade of blue is very similar to the, the houses in the top left corner. So, yeah. you know, that's what works for me. But I, I think people need to to find the trick that works for them because it's not necessarily something that involves following the mindfulness handbook.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's, I mean, it's, we all have our own ways of managing these things, I suppose. But I think one of the things I've really taken away from what you've chatted about earlier was we should be more connected. We should be doing all of these things or feeling as if we are. And I think there is something about us thinking about what our own needs are and actually sometimes actually craig and i have talked about this about craig um won't mind me saying as he shared it himself and um is that you like to spend time on your own as well craig and you really value yeah. that and I, think, I mean i think that's really important
2: mm. and i think that it's a real luxury to spend time by yourself because if you think there'll be lots of people and we saw this clinically in the pandemic because they couldn't find any time to have privacy for their zoom calls they have people around them all the time and actually carving out some time when you really are alone and can use that time to enjoy yourself rather than catching up with cooking meals or trying to go through your benefits forms or something like that mm. it's quite a privilege to have solitude sometimes um but then conversely for other people they have just have too much solitude and a real sense that nobody wants to fill that time with them and that they would be a burden on others if they said or oh, would you like to join me to do something and that sense of Being so repellent to other people is just so eroding of your self-image, isn't it? And that's what comes up again and again in the qualitative research that we do.
0: I know it is heartbreaking. There's a number of people in our studies we've we've spoken to, and it's over the years. And as you described really heartbreakingly, Alexandra, is that sense of I'm not worthy or worth somebody spending time with me or just even connecting with me or sharing a word. And I suppose in that context, then have we, got, have we got a tip just for anybody out there? What can we do, any one of us, to help somebody else feel less lonely? I
2: suspect from, from reading these accounts in, in the qualitative data we've analysed is that there's some, some groundwork to do first with regard to, to enjoying solitude and being comfortable in oneself. And what you're describing, Craig, is somebody who feels really comfortable being by themselves and telling other people, this is something I enjoy. And once you feel comfortable in that, in that state, I think you're better prepared to make overtures to other people and say, shall we do this? Because I think that there are all these social rules to navigate about not looking too desperate, not appearing needy. And it, these are really complex communications. And I talked earlier about international students; they're trying to navigate this in a completely different culture. Um, I think that trying to examine the way you feel about your own loneliness and the way you feel about other people can be quite instructive. Because if you have these absolute views, you know, nobody's going to want to hang out with me. Um, everybody's staring at me because I'm standing by myself. You know, these are really going to, you know cut out all you know attempts at making overtures to other people so I think being aware of the way one might have quite unhelpful thoughts about how other people might react to one and perhaps challenging those thoughts can help when you do make the effort to sign up for a course Mm -hmm. change jobs do something different and you know the more time that you spend enjoying your solitude out in public so sitting in a cafe with your book whatever the more that you create opportunities to interact with other people but again you know it sounds lame but it it, it's it's important to say it's just so different for everybody so I've said before that you know the, the state of research into what works to address loneliness is really in its infancy and I think the more that we investigate this as a, as a uh, you know, as a team of, of researchers and practitioners and people with lived experience, the more we can provide kind of tips for people that are helpful. And I, and I guess I should really promote something that we produced recently, which was a loneliness resource for, for people who feel lonely by people who've experienced mm-hmm. loneliness and mental health problems. And it was, it was a co-produced guide on what to do if you feel lonely and we've, um, included this as a resource on our loneliness and social isolation and mental health website so i think that kind of thing where it's tailored to a specific group can be really helpful because if you identify with the people who wrote the guide it's more likely to be helpful to you
0: yeah i think it's great and uh, if it's okay then we'll in, a, in the show notes we can add links to to yeah, those resources. That'd, be, that'd be fantastic mm-hmm. well, Alexander. We're, we're sort of coming towards the end and i have a couple of quickfire um questions which um I haven't told you about, I forgot to. But, oh, <laughs> these are the most important questions. <laughs> just given we touching Sorry. on some heavy, heavy material, it's just it's nice you. to end a bit more in the light, a little more lighter note. But Alexander first, something you're thinking we should be saying.
2: I think one thing that's important to say is that there are quite limited validated measures for capturing loneliness. And we, we tend to see um the UCLA loneliness scale that's used in a lot of studies the Dion-Gierbold loneliness measure that's used in a lot of studies but there are concerns um, that perhaps they might not be capturing the full range of experiences of loneliness and they they might be probably very culturally narrow so I think we do need a lot more work to understand and capture the experience of loneliness in specific groups and develop measures that would perhaps be more suitable for them.
0: So Alexander the last two quick fire questions so and apologies for not giving you advance warning of these, but let's see how how we go. So, so if you're thinking about somebody living or dead, it doesn't matter who they are, it doesn't have to be linked to loneliness, but who you could have um, dinner with, who do you think, who would it be, who's the top of your list?
2: I think this reflects my own specific interest in suicide research. So I'd be very interested to meet somebody who was a researcher, who was very influential in the 1970s called Edwin Schneidman. Mm-hmm. And he was the first person really to draw attention to the impact of suicide loss. And he came up with the first estimate of how many people were, were greatly affected by suicide loss, which actually is a you know, significant underestimate when we think about what we currently think about the the, the great number of people affected. But what's so important was that he was the first person to draw attention to this and to think about, you know, all of the the, the manifestations of grief after suicide loss, including loneliness.
0: Yeah, that's funny you mentioned Ed, because I I never met him, but I wrote to him. I wrote to him. (laughs) So I wrote a book in the year 2000 and on suicide. and I covered a lot of his work. And I sent him a copy. And so he replied. And I was, so actually, I've got to let the reply. Have so, you? Well, I was so, I mean, I was so delighted and honoured. For those who are listening, this person, um, Ed Snyman, is like the founding person in sort of the modern suicide research. And he founded the first suicide prevention centres in Los Angeles, I think it was. And he spent, from the 1950s, for about 50 years in almost, I think he died not that long ago, a really tiring force. And, and really incredible in, in terms of bringing, I always think he brought the humanity, mm. the humanity into suicide prevention research. Mm. That's a great suggestion. So that's really, really, no, that's interesting. Okay, and the last one then, Alexandra, is thinking back to your, we're all, we're all a bit older now, and um, you're thinking back to your younger self, what advice would you give your 16-year-old or 18-year-old Alexandra Avoid what you've learned since?
2: Gosh, that's a good question. Um, I think that it, it, social relationships are so important to our, our everyday quality of life and the way we approach our careers and our personal relationships. And I, I think it goes back to what they said about enjoying solitude and learning, like Craig, to realize actually it's a really enjoyable state of being. And to never feel over that period embarrassed about standing alone at a party or sitting alone in a cafe to model, mm-hmm. you know, enjoying that time alone. Because I think we can sometimes crowd out um, our ability to just have that white noise by our seeking out of social connections, and some of them maybe aren't of you know particularly great quality. And actually, if we preserve that white noise, and this is a term that I, I, I learned in a, in a kind of leadership course actually at UCL, they talked about the importance of having time, whether you're, you're making a cup of tea to just be in the moment. And I suppose they're really th- talking about mindfulness. But you can crowd that out with, you know, tweeting somebody or making a phone call. And actually, you know, I think I, I wish that 16 year old self had embraced solitude as a really important part of their life to really enjoy that white noise.
0: Yeah, that's a great piece of advice. Just- taking time just to, the quiet times are really really important aren't they Craig any final thoughts for you from you no um just
1: to go on like what you just said Alexandra it's it's true because when i was like 16 18 i felt really uncomfortable and the mm-hmm. fact that like why can't i join in with the group there's something wrong with me whereas over time i feel more comfortable in it and it's it's, uh, it's not an issue anymore
2: I was um, really struck by some young people who talked about really difficult times when they were 16 and going through school and not feeling like they fitted in at school. And then they transitioned to a new period of their lives. Maybe they're in work or maybe they were at college. And they would talk about this moment when they finally found their tribe and they finally found people they could connect with. And it was a seismic moment for them. And you, sometimes you just have to wait to find your tribe. And you may feel like a misfit, but it's, it's not gonna necessarily be like that forever. And I think it's really difficult to reassure a 16-year-old that, that that, you know, is probably going to happen at some time soon. And until then, advising their time, it is probably a good thing to enjoy their solitude because the alternative, which is just continuously being surrounded by people you cannot connect with,
0: is really, really eroding of one's mental health. I think that no, that's a great ending because in my head, we're trying to promote a podcast. So when you're enjoying your solitude, Please listen to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> on that, on that but don't allow your thoughts to be crowded out by our Yeah, us. okay. But then take a break when the podcast ends and do and do that um, self-quiet reflection. Yeah. Seriously, Alexander, that was a delight. Thank you so much for sharing your Thank knowledge, your expertise, and obviously your own experiences. And, and and have a great day. Take care. Thank, Fantastic. Thank Bye. you. Bye.
1: MQ Open Mind is presented by MQ Mental Health Research, the only organization that exclusively invests into scientific research around mental health. Our vision is to create a world where mental illnesses are understood, effectively treated, and one day prevented. Visit MQMentalHealth.org to learn more.